Well, good afternoon, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you. And uh, thank you very much to uh, the organizers for inviting me here. This is a, a wonderful pleasure. And as I was listening to the papers already this morning, I was thinking, oh, I probably should have presented something I've already written before, um, other than trying to come to a conference with something brand new. But this is what I have done. And um, so I am excited to have this opportunity to present some of my new work. Uh, to you today, but please, please know that this is very provisional. And in fact, I would assume that some of you probably uh, are, are more expert in this area than I am. So I'm looking forward to your ideas um, as I develop this work in the future. Um, between October 2nd and December 31st, 1982, nearly 80,000 Banyarwanda, most of who were citizens of Uganda, were violently expelled from their homes by state operatives Mbarara and Bushenu districts. Approximately half fled to neighboring Rwanda, while the rest crowded into existing refugee settlements in the Southwest, or found themselves stranded on the Ugandan side of the border at Morema Hill. Unlike the Asian expulsion of 1972, the Banyarwanda were not given 90 days to prepare. Instead, they were attacked in their homes and forced to flee with a moment's notice. Most of the displaced lost everything that they owned, their homes, their valuables, their cattle. International observers have also reported multiple instances of rape and suicide. I do not wish to suggest that the Asian expulsion was any less violent or traumatic. On the contrary, I argue that it provided a dangerous template that was later used by those in power to justify and carry out the next brutal eviction. Indeed, as this presentation reveals, expulsion functioned as a militarized form of statecraft that bolstered and then later undermined the integrity of the post-colonial state. Now, as I said, um, this project is at a very preliminary stage and it's part of a larger book project um, that is looking at the gendered leg legacies of militarism after the collapse of a means military state. And um, some of you know I've, I've worked on um, a means regime before, and so I'm happy to talk more about that early work, specifically about the expulsion, of, if that is of interest. But today I want to I wanna think through this idea of the, the parallels and ruptures with the Banyuanda expulsion, which happened 10 years after the Asian expulsion. I should also mention um, that what I'm going to be presenting today is snippets from the archive, the archive, some of which I actually just discovered two days ago. And so this is <laughs> so fresh, it's not even been analyzed hardly. Um, but I began collecting data for this project in 2017. Uh, I was able to visit, uh, first of all, the, the National Archives in, in, in Kew uh, and gather a bunch of data. I was able to go to uh, the UNHCR archives in Geneva, which are full of very rich material. Uh, I analyzed reports by groups such as Cultural Survival and other organizations. Um, I combed through the, the testimonies thousands and thousands of pages from the Commission of Inquiry from the Violation of Human Rights, um, which I, I used a lot in my first book and I'm <laughs> using it a lot uh, in the second. And I also um, had a, a team of researchers working with me to do interviews in various parts of the country, primarily with women. I'm primarily a, a feminist historian of militarism and I'm interested in women's lives. So I wanted to be able to access the experiences of women who are not often part of these official 
archival repositories. And in fact, as I was digging through what I collected in the official archives, um, I discovered there weren't a lot of women there. So it's really, really great that, um, that we can capture their, their, their lives in other ways. And one of the things that I know that Anita and I were talking about might be useful today is to talk about the archives and how we do this kind of research and what we can find and what we can't. Because I will tell you the project that I wanted to present to you today, uh, the project that I want my next book to be, is not the book that I'm going to get to write because I didn't have the material. So this is, this is the next iteration of, of what that might be. Um, okay, so let me just give you a little bit of background. Um, so who are the Banyuwanda? Um, fortunately, Godfrey, <laughs> I appreciate you going before me because you've, you've set a lot of this up for me. Um, and and who, is, who is a refugee? So there's approximately about 1 million uh, Banyuwanda living in Uganda, give or take, or at least that was the figure in, in the mid 80s. I'm sure it's much higher now. Um, there were some ethnic Banyuwanda that became Ugandan um, by virtue of the drawing of the colonial boundaries, but like every many ethnic groups, they are they are found in parts of what's Congo, in Rwanda, Burundi, and in Uganda. And so those who happened to be where the borders were uh, drawn ended up uh, as Ugandans. Their family members on the other side of the border were not. Another group of persons who are categorized as Banyuwanda came in the 1920s as labor migrants and have legal claims to citizenship. Others, uh, some of those people, I should say, who came in the 1920s intermarried with uh, local populations, especially the Banyankole, who are ethnically very similar to the Banyuwanda, um, which makes it very difficult then and today to determine who is actually Banyuwanda. And, and a lot of people don't actually necessarily know the difference, which I find really fascinating when you're thinking about the legacies of, of identity. And then another most significant group of, of individuals came between 1959 and 1973 after the political violence in Rwanda. These are the only group of persons in Uganda that can be considered Banyuwanda refugees because they fall under the UN definition. It was this uh, group, this definition, Banyawanda refugees, who were the people who were expelled um, in, in 1982. So the expulsion was about removing them, but as I said, most of the, the Banyawanda who lived in the area of southwestern Uganda, where, where is, is their, their main home base, didn't actually consider themselves as refugees. They weren't, in fact, refugees, and many of them, because they had been there for generations, had actually believed that they were citizens. Now, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go into the discussion about how citizenship works, because I think we've already gotten that um, nicely laid out by many of my colleagues. But needless to say, uh, there were many Banyawanda who had just assumed because they'd been born in Uganda, they were Ugandans. That was not the case. 1969, uh, Obote planned to hold uh, a survey to a census to identify uh, non-citizens in, in the country. This included Asians, it included Banyarwanda. Um, and he wanted to make sure that people who are considered non-citizens were not allowed to vote. He also wanted to make sure that jobs were res reserved in the public sector for those who were considered Ugandan citizens. Um, and so th there was a lot of tension surrounding the, the beginning of this, this census, but um, 
Fortunately, uh, the census was precluded by a means coup. That's probably the only time I will ever say that. Um, and so as a result, many of the Banyawanda appreciated the opportunity that came when a, uh, when a means seized power. Certainly, we could talk a lot about the violence of that regime, but, but it also meant that they were uh, spared for a, for a particular moment of time. And so uh, many Banyawanda felt uh, appreciation. So fast forward to the collapse of Amin's regime. In 1979, the UNLF period from 1979 to 1980, the heavily contested re-election of Obote in 1980, and the start of the NRA Bush War in February of 1981. Most of that war was fought in the Luero Triangle, which was home to many of the Banyawanda um, who'd been living in the Southwest and, and in Luero. Um, many of those Banyolanda ended up joining Museveni's struggle against the Abote government for, for old and for new grievances um, that they had against Abote. Uh, the Banyolanda had become an easy scapegoat for much of the violence that had been taking place and threatened uh, the stability of Abote's regime. And so it was, it was logical that they would become involved in, in the the fight. Okay, so, so this is all taking place in 1981 and, and yeah, basically 1981. So things really got started for the expulsion at a rally in 1982, January. Abote made this announcement. He, he published this in the, this was published in the Uganda Times on January 11th. He said, quote, some refugees are trying to abuse our hospitality and some Rwandans voted in the last election. I warned them when I was in Imbarara. Reports indicate that some of them have gone to the bush and a non-Ugandan going to the Ugandan bush to disturb Ugandans, a visitor that does that is inviting himself to be sent away. So that was published January 11th, 1980. The same day, uh, this, sorry, 1982, I wrote 1980, but 1982, sorry, sorry. Um, the same day, the same state-run newspaper, the Uganda Times, published an editorial with the title, Refugees Are Not Above the Law. And this editorial claimed that most atrocities committed during Amin's era had been done by non-Ugandans, a claim that is um, unfounded. The editorial also said that some refugees quote, flirt with terrorists in Buero district and are responsible for the prevailing unrest there. It was claimed that refugees were a liability to the nation. The editorial wrote that Ugandans cannot and will not stay put if they are expected to continue shouldering the responsibility of caring for these ungrateful people. It went on to say that if refugees, particularly those from Rwanda, do not reciprocate our hospitality, by being law-abiding, in the name of peace and progress, Ugandans may ask their government to build camps for them so that their dirty activities can be easily monitored. Alternately, we shall tell them to go. After all, have we not more than anyone else kept them long enough? So this is published in the state-sanctioned paper. So this is essentially the mouthpiece of the state. Shortly thereafter, this is January, there was an incident in Barara where three UPC-affiliated uh, personnel were killed. 
Um, there had been a spate of cattle rustling in, in 1981 and early 1982. Uh, there was the perception that it was Banyawanda who were engaged in the cattle rustling, uh, stealing primarily or only from the Banyankole, taking the cattle across the border into Rwanda, selling it for big profits, and then living large on the loot. Um, not really evidence to suggest this, but this was the rumor. So what happened is a group of, uh, of three individuals, two UPC youth wingers and one uh, police officer came to arrest some of these smugglers. The Banyuanda instead went to the, the nearby uh, military base of the UNLA, the, the Liberation Army, and reported bandits who were in the area. The UNLA went out without doing any um, assessment shot the three on the spot, killing them. This outraged, obviously, members of the local community saying, You've now, you're now responsible for murdering our people. Um, and so it created a big uproar. And it was this, uh, this killing that actually instigated the wave of um, expulsions that I'm going to quickly run through. I have seven minutes left. And I should mention, too, that at the funeral for these individuals who were killed by the UNLA, uh, the Minister of Agriculture, Patrick Rubahayo, made a statement and he said, I, I will not rest until we figure out who is responsible for these killings. Um, not knowing at the time that it was actually the government, it was the UNLA who was responsible, but he said, I promise you, we're going we're gonna to get them. And so everybody in, in the area was agitated. They were really on high alert. There'd been these killings. The president had made a statement. Um, in mid-July of 1982, a few months later, the district council uh, passed a resolution in Umbarara saying that all refugees should be moved from the border. Now, it's interesting. The Commission of Inquiry into Violations of Human Rights has the exact, has an extract from the minutes from this meeting um, and, and they note the following about the so-called Banyuanda refugees, quote, this is according to the district com commission meeting. They have left the camps and during the means time they acquired land titles and some have chased away rightful citizens from their land using forceful means. They registered in the last elections because it was hard to control them. Some have started claiming that they are Bafundira. Three, they own cattle. They're, sorry, their own cattle are never stolen only those of the Banyankole, indicating clearly that these are the people who steal the cow, end quote. The district council then decided that one, the refugees should be forced to go back into their camps and that their movement should be checked and restricted, which by the way, is a violation of international law. <laughs> you cannot force refugees to stay in, in camps or settlements, but Nonetheless, that's where they wanted them to go. Also, never mind the fact that most of the people living in the area who were by Rwanda weren't actually refugees. Okay, but they had to go. The second thing they wanted is that they should be under the jurisdiction of the Uganda government directly, other than being under the, the province of the UNHCR. This would enable the government to better monitor their movements. And third, the, the district council wanted that them to be moved from the border <laughs> and be given areas elsewhere because they are causes of insecurity on our borders. And they passed that motion unanimously. 
later, um, when the, the minister of, uh, the member of parliament from Barrera South was asked to testify, compelled to testify before the commission of inquiry, um, he likened refugees in camps to animals who had strayed. He said that the expulsion was merely to return them to the camps where they could stay out of trouble. He said, quote, the purpose of the exercise was to collect the stray. And there were very, very many, my lord. In the 1970s, they just left the camps. And I do not think when we approached the Ministry of Culture then, they did not know how many refugees they had in this country because some had already claimed they were citizens. And even, I do not think presently the government may know which people of Rwandan origin are still re registered as refugees. So it's fascinating, the kind of the, the language that's being used to talk about people who've been living in Uganda for a very long time as, as, as strays. Uh, Obote eventually gave credence to this theory in February of 1983 during a press conference. He said, it is not true that the September incident occurred because of government policy. What happened was resentment by Ugandans against Rwandese refugees who had left the camps and occupied the citizens' land. Instead of reading this statement as Obote's non-culpability, I see this as evidence of the lack of control that I mean that a See, I'm thinking of me, that Abote really had over the state and the powerful <coughs> who actually ran it. And I can talk about that more in the Q&A. As an aside, I also, when I was doing research for this project, heard many people tell me stories about how Abote was constantly drunk and how he was always in his um, office passed out. And so it's not surprising then that there are other big men who are, who are running the state. Um, Another architect of the expulsion, Patrick Mubahayo, uh, believed that it was the Banyawanda's failure to integrate that was the cause of the problem, uh, similar to what we heard with the, the Asians as well, um, not the fact that they were straying from the camps. He testified before the commission that, quote, but when you have situations where people come into society and keep their integrity, and they may have some superiority conflicts or inferiority conflicts, or some other complexes that the locals may find it very difficult to digest, you are bound to have problems. So the only thing I would recommend, if possible, is to integrate." End quote. Um, and so the, the archives are actually filled with uh, different examples of different colonial uh, and, and former colonial uh, officials talking about the failure um, to integrate of the Banyawanda over time. And so I think that this is something really important. Um, another claim that has been proven unfounded is that the Banyawanda were very active in Amin State Research Bureau. Certainly there were some high-ranking members in the SRB, um, but the vast majority of operatives were not actually Banyawanda. That was a very easy scapegoat. Um, so looks like I've given all this context and now I haven't been able to tell you much about the expulsions. I will just very quickly um, run over some of the, the main things. Um, October 1st, 1982, the expulsion begins, okay? Over the course of two to three months, about 80 to 90,000 Banyawanda were forced to leave uh, their homes, primarily in Mbarara and Bushini district. About half of them crossed the border in Sri Rwanda, where they were in two different camps. The other half uh, went into uh, existing refugee settlements in southwestern Uganda, Nachibali and Orochinga primarily. 
After a period of time, after the first month, uh, November 1st, Rwanda closed the border because they were afraid of so many people coming back in. Um, so there were a, a group of about 4,000 uh, individuals, primarily Ugandans, that were stuck in a place called Lorema Hill. They were unable to cross the border. A lot of them were reluctant. They did not want to go into the existing established camps because they did not want to be, oops, I'm done, um, associated <laughs> with, with refugees. And so they lived in these places for, for several years. Um, and in fact, it was not until uh, the fall of, of Agote's government in 85 that they even began to contemplate coming back. Um, I'm happy to talk in the Q&A about the, some of the gendered repercussions, which I'm just starting to get at. But this is, this is what I get for having an outline. Um, but I can talk about you know, the experiences of exile that were, that were different for women, for men, um, as well as the linkages that I, I see with um, Abote and Amin and, and the state, unfortunately. Um, I don't want to take more time, so I'm happy to do that. And hopefully in the larger paper, I'll, I'll have a chance to kind of flesh that out. But I appreciate the opportunity to, to at least start to present some of this work to you today.